Amen. And would you be seated, please? And as you are being seated, I'd like for you to take your Bible this morning or your iPhone or your iPad or however you happen to read the Word of God and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's way back in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, and chapter 6. And in a moment, we're going to begin reading there. Thank you so much for inviting me to come to Iron City. And I would be remiss if I did not add my thanksgiving to what our pastoral leader said a moment ago when he said, thank you for what you did last night. I want to tell you what, the 16 who came to know Christ have nothing whatever to do with the visiting preacher, but they have everything to do with you who cooked and you who invited and you who set up the place and tore it down afterwards to get ready for this morning. And all of you who participated in any way, you are directly responsible for those 16 people who trusted Christ last night. I thank you for that. There will be a wonderful reward for you in heaven that you're probably not even going to be expecting when you get there just because of what you did. Now, late last night, after it was all over with, I had the privilege of having coffee with your pastoral staff and, and uh, talking with them. I am now convinced that you must be the greatest church in all the world. At least that's what they seem to indicate to me. So I was super impressed. Thank you for loving them and supporting them and encouraging them in the task. They are indeed a wonderful team together, and God has favored you with that, and he has favored them with you. And so it's wonderful to see a church and a pastoral staff working together in harmony. I would also be remiss if I did not thank you for what you did for our six seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. You say, well, I didn't know I did anything. Yes, through your cooperative program gifts to the Southern Baptist Convention, you make it possible for our students at Southwestern to go to school for a third of the cost that they would go anyplace else. You've got a number of students here at Southern Seminary. They're going there at a third of the cost. Now, when they pay their bill, they probably don't feel like that. But the point is that they're actually going at a third of the cost that it would take them to go uh, uh, attend any other evangelical seminary. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm happy about that. Shouldn't our guys have to pay the same thing everybody else does? No. You are ecstatic about it. Let me tell you how happy you are about it. You are delighted that you're paying their scholarships because that's what you're doing for two-thirds of the cost of their education through your gifts, the cooperative program, because when they graduate, they graduate with no accumulated educational debt. And when they graduate, they can go immediately to serve churches the average Southern Baptist church has less than 200 people. You're a mega church by those kinds of uh, uh, assessments. And so uh, they can go to a small church out there that pays them $16,000 a year, whether they need to get it or not. And uh, they can, can do that because they don't have any debt. But more important than that, they can be appointed a missionary. Did you know there's not a mission agency in the world that will appoint anybody with debt? You know why? Because on a missionary salary, in the next 5,000 years, they'd never pay it back. And so they can't appoint them, so they have to be debt-free. 
our guys can be appointed missionaries immediately, which is why today, today you have also that you pay the full salary for 4,800 missionaries today in 136 countries of the world that we openly admit to. <laughs> and so, uh, more than that, and but hopefully no press here this morning, so I can say that. And uh, you have, you're supporting them. You, you keep them there on the field, and you make it possible for them to go because they graduate without debt. Aren't you proud of yourself? I mean, you are doing super well. Not only that, but when you give the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or uh, some special offering like that, do you know it's unlike any other offering you ever give? You give it on Sunday. Before the next Lord Day rolls around, it is already out on the field. Can you believe that? No overhead costs taken off, nothing else. It goes directly from your church to the mission field, directly to the seminaries, directly to whatever it is that's being supported. You won't find that anywhere in the world, and you do that. I want to thank you for it this morning. All right, now, with all that out of the way, I want to talk to daddies and granddaddies. The rest of you are welcome to listen, or if you're bored, you can leave. No, don't do that. But the fact of the matter is, I want to talk to daddies and granddaddies, and actually, wives and grandma and all you children, you really want to listen. In fact, there'll be several places where you'll want to use the elbow to the ribs this morning. So I hope you're sitting by your father or your grandfather. And so let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now the word Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero, second. Namas is the Greek word for law. It's a Greek title to the book. What in the world does it have a Greek title for? It's in the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, they had a problem in those days similar to what we have today. We have in the state of Texas, for example, one half of the population is Spanish-speaking. They don't know whether to learn Spanish or learn English. It's a monumental problem, but if you really intend to serve them, you got to get their language. Little Hebrew children growing up in Egypt, they didn't know Hebrew. And so the only way for them to be able to read the scriptures was to translate them into Greek. And that's what they did in Alexandria in a translation that became known as the Septuagint. And it gave many of our books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those books are named with, with, uh, with Greek titles because those, that's the way that the Hebrew children read it in Egypt. So Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Now, you need to know it's just one sermon. All 34 chapters, one sermon. Next time you get unhappy with your pastor for preaching too long, turn to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. I'm telling you what, they stood around. They stood for the whole sermon. And so all the children of Israel out there on the plains of Moab, Looking over into the promised land, Moses is not going to be able to go. This is the last thing he ever says to the children of Israel before he dies, and God buries him up there. One final sermon, what's he going to say? Hey, boys, when you come into the land of Canaan, whip those Canaanites. Didn't say that. 
When you come into the land, be sure you are industrious farmers. You plant your crops and you harvest them. He never mentioned it. What on earth did Moses say to the fathers and the grandfathers? Listen to it, will you? In chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy. This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God has given you to teach you so that you may follow them in the land that you're about to go and possess. Do this that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping his, his statutes and his commandments. I am giving you, um, I, I'm giving to you uh, and uh, your, your, gen your grandson and your son and your grandson so that, it, that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, or hear, O Israel. It's actually called the Shema of Israel after that first word. Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These words that I'm giving to you this day shall be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down at night, when you get up in the morning. Bind them as a sign for you on your hand and on your and on as an symbol on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house then it shall be that when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you your fathers uh, of which he promised to your fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would give you a land of uh, large and beautiful cities that you did not build and and you uh, uh, have uh, um, trees that you didn't plant, orchards that you didn't plant, and wells that you didn't dig, then beware lest you forget the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Israel. Moses' final instruction to the children of Israel. Now the first thing I want you to see in the text is that he tells daddies and granddaddies to instruct your children in the commandment and the statutes, and the judgments. Well, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do, I think, but what does he mean, the commandment, and the statutes, and the judgments? Well, the word commandment is the Hebrew word mitzvah, and it has to do with the Ten Commandments. Teach your children the Ten Commandments. Well, now, wait a minute, Brother Page. I thought we were living in the age of grace. Why am I going to teach my kids the law? Because unless a child grows up understanding the law, he will never have a need for grace. I have a friend in California who illustrates it this way. He says, let's suppose you're flying on an airplane and you're at 35,000 feet. And uh, the stewardess comes back and she says, you need to put on this parachute. Uh, it's something safe to do. We, we normally do this, and just in case any accident 
takes place, so put this parachute on and wear it. Now, you take the parachute and you put it on, and it's very uncomfortable. I mean, it cuts you right along here, and not only that, you have to sit out on the edge of the seat because the parachute's behind you back there, and about 10 minutes into the plane ride, you take the parachute off. But now let's change the circumstances a little bit. The stewardess is coming back down the aisle, and she says, please put on this parachute. This plane has lost power, and it's going down. And the probability is that in just a few moments, to save your life, you're going to have to jump. Now, I'm going to wager that every one of you will put the parachute on because you don't want to go down with the plane and be in a terrible crash, and that's the end of you. And so it makes a big difference why. Now, many people don't come to the grace of God because they've never understood the law of God. So, Daddy and Granddaddy, your first responsibility to your home is to teach your kids the law. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, I thought that's why we had church. No, that's not why you've got church. We at the church don't have your kid but a maximum of three hours a week anyway. And so, we hardly ever see him. And the church is not given the responsibility of teaching the law to your children, you, Dad, and you, Granddad, are the pastor of your household. You are the teacher of your house. You have that responsibility. The church is supplementary. The church comes along and gives an accent mark, an exclamation point to what has been taught at home. But before there was ever Israel and before there was ever a church, there was a home. It is the first and most important of God's institutions. And I don't care if the whole world has become feminized. Daddy, you are still going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what you did as the head of your household. The fact that you're head of the household doesn't make you the dictator, doesn't make you the potentate, doesn't make you the world ruler. It means that you are the spiritually responsible party for the development and the salvation of your children and your grandchildren. That's what it means. And so you teach them the law. Now you see, actually, the Ten Commandments are a child's primer to introduce us to what kind of a God God is. Do you ever think about it that way? It's exactly right. Very simple. There's nothing hard about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. That's pretty clear. Doesn't take a Hebrew scholar to figure that one out, does it? And here we go again. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I got that. Thou shalt do no murder. Mm -hmm, that goes contrary to my nature, but yes, I get it. I absolutely get it. I understand it. I got it down. It's not hard to get. Oh, no, they're not hard. They're not difficult because they're a child's primer to introduce the child to what kind of a God God is. Now, let me just deal with one of them this morning. I don't have time to do any more than that, so I'm going to deal with the one that does seem difficult. Thou shalt not covet. What on earth does that mean? Well, isn't covetousness when you want somebody else what somebody else has? I like your automobile. I wish I had it. Is that covetousness? No. 
who ever told you that? That's not covetousness at all. It only becomes covetousness when I say, I want your automobile regardless of what is the will of God for my life. You see, to covet something is fundamentally to decide that you know better about your life than God does. Lord, I need this. I want this. I've got to have this rather than trusting in the providences of Almighty God. Now, I'm not coveting when I see your car and say, I like it better than mine. I wish I had it. That's not covetousness. It may not be too smart, but it's not covetousness. It's only covetousness when it leads me to operate contrary to the providences of God. Let me tell you what. If you don't teach your child, you shall not covet. If you don't teach your child to trust in the providences of God through every exigency of life, what will happen is your child will face the difficulties of life, the sorrows of life that overwhelm us all just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to avoid those. No, they roll in like a mighty winter storm and they overwhelm people and people go crazy and they find the psychiatrist and they get on the psycho psychotropic drug and they're looking for this and looking for that and they're cast down and they're, they're totaled out. And why is that? Because daddy didn't teach them that it's all okay, that God is still on his throne and that he's watching out for your best interest and that when you need him most, he will be there to walk you through the deep waters. Therefore, you shall not covet. Learn to trust the providence of God. Absolutely essential information. And daddy, it has to come from you. Teach him the covenants. Teach them the statutes, the kukim in the Hebrew tongue. Well, what are the statutes anyway? Well, did you ever have your pastor say, all right, this year we're going to read all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Maps. We're going to read the whole thing. And uh, we're going to be in a Bible reading program. If, if, if it kills us, we're going to get through the whole thing. And so we began reading. And not far into Genesis, we get bogged down in the begats. So-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat. So another hard name begat, another hard name. And, and uh, I know you wouldn't say it because you know it's a Bible and it's to be reverence, but I read your mind. You're thinking, dear God, why did you write all this? This is boring, you know. And uh, if you survive the begats, you come to the tabernacle furniture. Now, who gives a flying rip how they move the tabernacle? I mean, give me a break. This is boring stuff. Why in the world is that there? And why do I need to read that anyway? Well, why is it? Those are the kukim. Those are the ordinances of God. The kukim. Now, why is it that I need to know those? Well, you see, there is Old Testament kukim. And there's New Testament cooking. In the New Testament, we call the statutes. That's God's plan of salvation. That is, once you realize that you have broken the law and you need forgiveness for having broken the law, then how do you get that forgiveness? That's the cooking. 
Those are the judgments of God, are the, the, the ordinances of God. And so in the Old Testament, the tabernacle information is there for one essential reason, and that is to teach you that you don't come to God on your own timetable, in your own way, however you want to, whenever you want to, you come on God's timetable in the way God told you to come. For example, they were told you move the Ark of the Covenant in a special way. Don't touch it. It represents the presence of God among you. Don't reach out and touch it. So one day, they're moving the Ark of the Covenant, and as they come across the threshing floor of nation, the Ark of the Covenant is rocking back and forth. It looks like it may fall off the cart and be destroyed. And so there is a man there who thinks he's going to do God a favor. And even though God said, don't touch the Ark, he reaches out and he touches the ark to steady it. You remember what happened to him? Dead on the spot. Oh, me. Lord, why did you do that? He was trying to help you. Why did you kill him? Because he failed to do it God's way. It is serious stuff to come to God. To appear before God is very serious business. And so the statutes are there to teach you how to come before God. Well, look at this one. Then the judgments, the mishpatim. What are the judgments? Well, the judgments are all of the historical narrative of the Bible. For example, why is the story of David and Goliath in the Bible? Oh, I know the answer to that one. I finally got one here. The story of David and Goliath in the Bible to entertain the kids while we're in big church. Oh, yeah? Well, then why is the story of David and Bathsheba in the Bible? Oh, that won't be too entertaining to the little kids. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, that's all part of the Mishpatim, all part of the judgments, all part of the illustrations of biblical truth. All of the historical material in the Bible, while it's very important historically, has a much greater point. All of it tells us what happens if you do it God's way, what happens if you do it your way. The story of David and Goliath is in the Bible to show you that when David was operating on God's principles, he slew a giant, no problem. David and Bathsheba is in the Bible to show you that when David operated on his own principles, he got into serious difficulty, and God judged him, and he paid the price for it all of his life. So all the historical narratives of the Bible are there to help us understand in concrete terms what it means to serve God and what it means to fail to. Daddy, granddaddy, you're responsible for teaching all that to your children. Now, what will it do for your children? Well, he lists a number of things here. Did you see them all? So that it may be well with you. So that you won't spend half your life on the psychiatrist's couch. So that you won't be downing psychotropic drugs all the time. So that you won't be having continual problems. So that it will be well with you. See, God intends for you to be joyful. 
He intends for you to have fun in life. That's the way he created you. He wants to make it possible for you. All you have to do is do things God's way, and that's what will happen. Nobody ever did everything God's way, but that he was supremely happy and wonderfully joyful. God will do that for you if you do it God's way. Am I telling you you'll never have troubles? Oh, goodness, no. You'll have more troubles. And if you do it God's way, the world's against you, and they'll pile on, and you got lots of troubles. What I'm telling you is that it won't make any difference. You'll have fun even in the trouble. I tell you what, that's what God does for you. He teaches you how to have fun even in trouble. And how to rejoice even in the sorrows that come along. And they don't discombobulate you and they don't derail you. And you're able to walk with God. Wouldn't you like for that to happen to your children or your grandchildren? Daddy, granddaddy, you're the responsible party. You're to teach them the commandment and the statutes and the judgments. And if you teach them the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, it will be well with them. And they will likely live long on the earth. It's not a guaranteed statement because, as we've already heard this morning, the tragic tragedy of martyrdom for some in, in the Middle East. And sometimes God has a purpose for taking us on. But generally speaking, insurance actuarial tables do not lie. And they tell us that anybody who is a regular churchgoer, who has a family devotion in the home, and who tries to follow the Lord and does not imbibe in drugs or strong drink, that person will, on an average, live 11 years longer than the average person. You think God knew what he was talking about? You bet he did. So you want it to be well with your kids? You want them to have a long life? You want them to know how to respond to the culture. We'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, let me just point out that God doesn't ask you to do anything. He doesn't tell you how to do it. How am I going to teach this to my kids? Do I set up a classroom at home? No, no, no. Please don't. They got enough of that already. This is teaching that grows out of living. It's how you live. It's what you talk about. He says, talk about them. When you rise up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you walk in the way, a modern translation of that would be when you got four on the highway. Um, wherever you go, whatever you do, interpret it in terms of God's Word and bring God's Word to apply to it. Now, every morning of the war, while my children were growing up, if I was home, they're going to hear Daddy read God's Word and pray for them. Every evening, my wife would go in, and she would kneel down beside the kids' beds, and she would read them a passage of God's Word that God had given her that day, and she would pray for them by name. You say, how long did she do that? Till they left to go to college. You mean they wanted her to do that? Yes, my son is six foot two. I don't know what happened to me. They put a brick on my head growing up, but he's six two, like his granddad, and uh, curly blonde hair when he had hair that made him look like a Greek god. 
he's quite a man. He bench press, I don't know how much. He uh, can shoot the ticks off his dog at 50 yards without hurting the dog. And uh, so he's quite a man. You say he wanted her to pray over him? Let me tell you what. Everybody loves to hear his name called before God in heaven. If she forgot, he'd go in, pick her up, bring her in, set her down by the bed and say, woman, do your thing. You bet. And she got into this needlework. Poor arthritis got so bad she couldn't do it. And so she wanted to keep the word of God before them. Like it says, write it on the doorpost. Doesn't mean turn your kids loose with, mo with magic marker, but it does mean get the word of God in front of them everywhere you can. So she wanted her daughter, Carmen, to be a Proverbs 31 woman. So you can imagine she beautifully embroidered Proverbs 31, and it's there on her wall. When Carmen went away to school, she took it with her. When she got married, she took it with her. It's still with her on her wall to remind her what her assignment is, even though she is a mother of two herself now. Well, what about my son? Well, his name is Armor, so you got it. You know what's up. Put on the whole armor of God. She did it beautifully and put it up there. Then she got thinking about me. And she said, goodness knows, he needs the word of God more than anybody does. And she was particularly thinking about one thing. And that is that during those days when all this was going on, I was under a little bit of fire. As a matter of fact, there were quite a number of days when I was able to enter my office without opening the door. I'd just slink through underneath. And uh, I confess that I indulged in more than one pity party. And I, I was also kind of running the length of the options, you know. Today I'd be down and discouraged and disheartened, and, and tomorrow my Irish would uh, set in. I am the world's worst combination. I'm one half Irish and one half Texan, which means I'm angry all the time. Uh, you say, well, what are you angry about today? Well, here it is, 10 minutes after 11. And I hadn't found anything to be angry about today, and I'm really ticked about that. And uh, so uh, the fact of the matter is I, I would run the gamut between those emotions. And, and so Ms. Patterson thought, I know what to do. So she put it into embroidery. And it said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. But that was only half her problem. The big half of the problem was, how do I make him look at it? She knows me well. You know what she did, you're not going to believe it. In the smallest room in our house, while I'm sitting there right in front of me, I can't get away from it. She knew I'd be there at least once a day, every day. And there it is, right there. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I can't get away from it. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets which were for You can't get too much of the word of God. And let me just say to you, daddy and granddaddy today, how your kid does in life, how he comes out in the ends of his days, how he does in his marriage, how he does in his professional life, whatever it is, how he gets along and handles life is directly accountable 
to how much of the word of God he has hidden in his heart. That's why the psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you can get enough of the word of God into him so that he thinks God's thoughts after him, nothing will disrupt his life. Forever he will be able to walk in a way of joy. Wouldn't you like that? Now, one final thing, and I'm through. How will they respond to the culture? Culture all around us is a powerful thing. Culture influences us more than we want to know. Um, for example, a few of you, not many, are approaching my age. And uh, you just scratch your heads about the music that the youngsters enjoy. And you look back to the good old days when on the hit parade, a few of you remember that, black and white television. And, uh, and we used to hear highly intellectual, stirring songs like, Take my hand, I'm a stranger in paradise. <laughs> Go back and look at the words now, and you say, that's stupid. Uh, but to us, it was greatly meaningful, and, and so we just can't understand what these kids... The fact of the matter is, we're all alike. We're all victims of the culture in which we live. And the degree to which we are victimized by that culture is the degree of unhappiness we'll have. All you have to do is to look at the culture and ask yourself, how'd that work for you? It doesn't work good for anybody. It messes up everything. Because God's culture is at categorical odds with the cultures in which we live, wherever we are, whatever culture it is. It doesn't mean there are not some good things in culture. There are. But the fact of the matter is that if you are culturized, you are doomed to unhappiness. And some of you will even start thinking, about taking your own life. I want to just pause right there and say a word to you young people. I want you to listen to me a moment. We're having a rash of this right now, understandably so, but I just want you to hear somebody say, when you think about taking your life, you're thinking about doing the most selfish one thing any human being can ever do. There is nothing more selfish than that. It is total disregard for everybody who loves you and cares about you. Most of all, it is total disregard for God who loves you. There is not any circumstance in life that should lead you to ever even harbor a thought for a moment, I may just take my life and end this all. Listen, you haven't gone through anything that other people haven't gone through something a lot worse and have come out on the other side. Don't you ever, ever, ever think about taking what you didn't get God gave it to you, and it is his to take at the right time, not yours to take, young people. Keep it in mind, okay? Now, how can you keep your kids from being captured by the culture? When you come into the land, you're going to have cities that you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to have orchards that you didn't plant. You're going to have wells to give you water that you didn't dig. You just inherit it all. It was dropped in your lap. Hey, folks, none of us here did it. Our forefathers coming into this land looking for a free worship above all else. They did it. 
they cut this land out of the thickets and and they made a place for us and we've inherited it and your kids and your grandkids are going to inherit it also. And then he said, beware. When you inherit things that you didn't do, then beware. Lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. The only way to keep your kids from forgetting what life is really all about is to teach them the commandments and the statutes and the judgments. And dad, granddad, that's your responsibility today. I first knew Charlie Miller when I was a kid. He was a remarkable old man. He had the rescue mission in Beaumont, Texas for homeless people. And uh, most folks didn't know Charlie's story. Charlie had been a prize fighter, very successful. But he got hooked on the bottle and it ruined his career. He got sober several times and he tried to go straight. He became the chauffeur for the famous opera singer Gallicochi for a while, but eventually he lost that job also due to drink. He got married and had a little baby boy, precious little baby boy, Charlie Jr. And Charlie got drunk again and again and again. One day he staggered home drunk and opened the door. He knew something wasn't right. But he didn't know exactly what it was until he saw the note on the table and he read it. It was from his wife. It said, Charlie, I love you more than life itself. But when you get drunk, you're dangerous to our little son. I'll never see you again, Charlie, but please know that I'll never love another man. And I'll be praying for you every day of my life. I'm taking little Charlie with me. She left him. Charlie was brokenhearted. For a while, he just sat and wept. Then all he could think of was to get another drink. Staggered back out onto the street, down the way to the bar that was always there, and ordered something to drink, and he drank and he drank and he drank till he was out of his head. Staggered back out onto the street. He was in Chicago. He was staggering down State Street. He came to an alleyway because it was getting dark and snow was beginning to fall. And he staggered down the alleyway, decided that he would just stay out there that night, freeze to death because he didn't know where his house was anyway and life wasn't worth living. And so Charlie Miller crawled into a barrel in that ratty alleyway to freeze to death and never wake again. The sun came out the next morning and the winds had blown the clouds away and sunlight came into the alleyway and Charlie opened his eyes and discovered that to his amazement he was alive and reasonably warm. 
and you couldn't understand it for a while, but as awful as it'll seem to you, in those days they patrolled the streets of Chicago on horseback. And of course, you got a little cleanup problem to do if that's the case. And unknown to Charlie, he had crawled into a barrel full of warm, fresh horse manure, and it had saved his life during the night. He staggered back out onto State Street, and as he staggered along, it was apparent to him that everybody knew where he'd been. They parted well ahead of him and went way around. And he thought, that's the way it is with my life. It's a stench in the nostrils of God and man. Why didn't I die? He was just thinking that. Why didn't I die? And to his amazement, he felt a human hand on his shoulder. He turned around and looked into a smiling face. The man said, sir, you look like a man who could use a fresh suit of clothes and a hot shower and a warm breakfast. And Charlie thought about that proposition for a moment, and he couldn't see anything wrong with any of it. So he followed along. They went to a very famous place in Chicago on State Street called the Pacific Garden Mission, where many a man has found Christ. And they went in, and Charlie got a hot shower, and he got a brand-new set of clothing, felt a lot better, and had a warm breakfast. He was feeling pretty good, and he got ready to leave, and that same hand was on his shoulder again. And the man knew his name by that time. He said, Mr. Miller, he said, you wouldn't want to leave before you got everything. Has everything been okay so far? And Charlie said, yeah, it's been great. He said, well, don't leave till you get everything. And Charlie said, what else is there? And he found himself in a room about half the size of this one with chairs. And sitting there toward the back, he watched as that same layman that had found him on the street stood up and opened the Word of God. And the layman said to the men that day, Whatever it is that enslaves you, God can set you free. God will give you back your life if you trust Him. He extended the invitation, and when he did, Charlie hung on for dear life. He didn't want to go down there, but God was speaking to his soul. And finally, he just couldn't hang on anymore, and he broke out into the aisle. He found himself running, but he was too weak to run, and he stumbled and fell. He never got up. He crawled the rest of the way to the front on all fours. That layman came down from behind the pulpit and put his arm around his shoulders, and he said, Mr. Miller, do you want to give your life to Christ? And Charlie said, I just want to know if you're telling the truth. Can God actually set me free from alcohol? I've tried Alcoholic Anonymous. I've tried everything in the world. Nothing worked. I, are you telling me God can set me free and give me back my life? He said, Mr. Miller, I'm promising you he can if you'll trust him. And Charlie wept his way to Christ. Well, he got up. He felt like he was 40 feet tall. He pranced back out onto State Street. He was so happy in the Lord. And he started home, and he rejoiced till he got within the sight of home, and his heart fell to his feet. He knew Mr. Miller wasn't there. Charlie Fields. He opened the door, walked into what seemed to him a totally vacant house, sat down in his chair, bowed his head, and began to weep. He didn't know how long he'd wept, but he did say that evidently the phone had rung for quite a while and he didn't even hear it. Finally did hear it, and he fumbled for it, picked it up, and said a meek hello. 
And his wife said, Charlie, God told me something happened to you. Charlie, what happened to you? Charlie said, it's hard to tell anybody something when you've got your fist in your mouth. But he said, I finally got it out and I told her what had happened. She said, Charlie, I'm two hours respite. Don't move until you are. Give her Charlie, and I'll be home in about three hours. And Charlie was transformed into a man that walked his child through the difficulties of life, teaching him the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, guaranteeing Would you bow with me?